0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Jonah Saller Show. I'm the host, Jonah Saller, and recently, for those of you who are listening in podcast form later, uh, recently I released a new project called The Theological Arsonist, which is basically, it's going to be me sitting down with different people talking about deep theological issues, helping people get back to biblical theology. So if that's an interest to you, go check it out on my website, watch the trailer on my YouTube, subscribe, and let's get this thing started and make an army of theological arsonists all around the world. So, today's message I've entitled, The Glory to Come. And the reason I've entitled that it that way is what we're going to be doing today is basically exploring a little bit of eternity. The picture of eternity. And so, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Um, and we're going to start in verse 18. We're going to be mainly focusing on verse 18 throughout today's message. But starting in verse 18, we're going to read through uh, verse 23. So, if you have a Bible, please open with me. Romans 8, verse 18 through 23. This is the word of the Lord. Let's read this together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with the, with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption, of our body. With that being said, let's open in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning so in awe of you, so in awe of what Christ has done, so in awe that through his death and resurrection, Lord, we have life. And this is not a work of ourselves, Lord, but it is a gift of God, extending his grace down, giving us the faith we need to endure to the end. Lord, we are so grateful that you are sovereignly in control and you hold everything in your sovereign hand we give you all the glory honor and praise this morning and i pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you that the words of my mouth would be edifying to the listeners and that your spirit would speak through me this morning in your precious name we pray jesus amen so as we get into this um i want to open with a little story so when i was on my honeymoon with my lovely wife One of our stops was the Grand Canyon. It was our very first time going, and so we were very excited to see it for the first time. And we had obviously seen lots and lots of different pictures of the Grand Canyon. And so we had this image in our heads of what it would look like, and we were very excited to see it. And I remember when we arrived, the canyon was obscured by, by trees. We had kind of the welcome center set up in one place, and then behind it was a path that kind of went, and there were trees. And I remember that moment when we finally passed by the trees, and we walked into the view of the canyon. I remember just being hit with an incredible sense of awe. The canyon was absolutely massive. It was breathtakingly beautiful. It made me feel so small in comparison. And I distinctly remember thinking to myself, pictures do not do this place justice. And of course, we took many, many pictures that day. But when we got back home from our honeymoon and we showed the pictures to our family and friends, we knew that the pictures they were seeing of the Grand Canyon just didn't do it justice. the the thought process follows, if if they could only see it in person, then they'd understand. And so, we approach a similar picture in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. So, let's read that again together. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Some translations say revealed to us. Now, when we read this, I I need to ask the question, how is it that Paul can say that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to come? See, for most of us watching, saying that is relatively easy. We have houses, jobs, and remarkable freedoms. And yet, even with these luxuries, we can struggle to be confident enough to stand up to the world around us for fear of offending somebody or, God forbid, being hated or rejected. Why is it so hard for us to endure even a slight bit of suffering while Paul says this after enduring incredible suffering? Paul was imprisoned. Paul was beaten. Paul was shipwrecked. And that's just to name a few. And eventually Paul was put to death for the name of Christ. And yet... He says, the sufferings of this time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. The only thing that can cause a man to endure deep suffering while simultaneously having a small-scale view of it is to have an absolutely massive, big view of the glory to come. And this is where I want to go back to the story I just told. My wife and I didn't have a full understanding of the Grand Canyon because we had such a limited understanding of its glory and magnitude from mere pictures. Therefore, we could not fully stand in awe thinking about it. In the same way, I think one of the biggest downfalls in Western Christianity is that we have such a limited view of what eternity actually means that when we are faced with slight opposition, we can end up shrinking back in fear of suffering. A greater understanding of what awaits us in eternity yields to a greater capacity to endure suffering while saying exactly what Paul said. So the goal of my message today is not to primarily focus on helping Christians to endure suffering, though that will indeed be a byproduct of greater understanding of what is to come. But rather today I want to show a picture straight from the Bible, straight from biblical text, That can give us a larger, broader image of what awaits us. God has done a remarkable job revealing to us pictures of what is to come throughout Scripture, and I hope to bring that out today. Now, the reason I think this is important is when I've asked Christians to describe where we'll spend eternity, I I come in contact with different believers on TikTok, some in person. Oftentimes I will get the response, Well, we're gonna spend it in heaven with Christ and when I ask them to elaborate on that It typically ends up bearing a strong resemblance to what you'd maybe find in a cartoon Floating somewhere in a heavenly kingdom made of gold in the clouds forever And I know that the majority of you watching don't believe that this is what eternity is going to look like But the sad part is the vast majority of Western Christianity has this prevalent idea of heaven And one, it comes from a misunderstanding of the location of our eternal state. Two, it comes from a literal interpretation of scripture when the text dictates that we should take a symbolic interpretation. And three, and majorly with this one, it comes from getting our theology of heaven from culture, where the depiction is typically floating somewhere in the clouds. So to address these things and help bring a little bit more clarity to the to the glory that awaits us to hopefully paint a bigger picture for you let's break this down starting with point number one we're gonna have two main points today and they're gonna be big points and we're gonna really really elaborate on them so point number one God will not annihilate the earth one of the most common ideologies of today And if you have a pen, I would appreciate if you write these things down because this will help you keep my thoughts together because there's a lot here. So point number one, if you have a pen and a paper, number one, God will not annihilate the earth. One of the most common ideologies of today is the idea that this present heaven and earth will be annihilated. How else could there be a new heaven and a new earth? Well, what I want to do is I want to turn back and look at Romans 8, which I believe distinctly show that this world will not be annihilated, but rather will be redeemed just as we are. So, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23, let's read this again together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us, or in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. So the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So in this text, I want you to notice some very important things. Number one, the creation itself eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. If the world is to be annihilated, why would it eagerly be awaiting the revealing of the sons of God? Secondly, God subjected creation to futility but in hope because creation itself will be delivered from its current bondage into the same liberty possessed by the children of God. Again, if creation is to be annihilated, why would Paul explicitly say that creation itself will be delivered to possess the liberty of the children of God? And lastly, creation groans, and we groan for the redemption of our body, which would be the resurrection of the dead at the rapture, which from this text, creation will also be set free from its bondage as well. Remember, we have spiritual redemption now, but we are awaiting bodily redemption. The main point I want to make from this passage is the idea that Paul is very strongly trying to get the message across that creation will not be destroyed, but rather will be released from the curse it is under due to the sinfulness of man. Now, one of the main texts I've seen used in support of the idea of earth being annihilated would be Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there with me. But Second Peter chapter 3, 10 through 13 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, most people read this passage and automatically assume total annihilation. The heavens will pass away, the elements will burn away with fervent heat, the earth will be burned up, and all the things will be dissolved. When we read that, it may seem cut and dry. But I want to look at the text again in its full context and ask ourselves, is that what this text is teaching? And again, remembering what we just read in Romans 8, we need to see the whole picture the Bible gives us before jumping to conclusions. If we backtrack in this chapter a little bit, we begin to see a picture not of annihilation, but of purification and redemption. So if you have your Bible open to 2 Peter chapter 3, let's go back and read verses 5 through 7. For this they willfully forgot that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded by, by, with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and partition of ungodly men. What we see here is some extremely interesting language. The world that existed perished. That word perish in the Greek can also be rendered destroyed. So we see that Peter is making a statement that the earth that existed in Noah's day was destroyed and perished. He goes on to say that the heavens and the earth that are now preserved are reserved for fire. Now, logically thinking, if we go back and we look at the flood, the flood in Noah's day did not annihilate the earth, as we are still living on it. But that earth was destroyed, as Peter clearly teaches. The flood in Noah's day didn't require a brand new creation afterwards, but rather through the flood, God removed wicked mankind, and the flood acted as a cleansing of the earth. In the same way, when we compare Paul's writing. With Peter's, we can see this picture clearly, that the current earth we live on is being reserved for fire, but not fire for total annihilation, but fire for the cleansing and restoration of all things. The earth looked different after the flood, but it was the same earth. The earth will look different after the restoration of all things, but it will be the same earth. A few more texts that illustrate this point, and then we'll move on. you have a Bible, again, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. And this has a lot, a lot of depth to it. And I want you to see the similarity in language, both in the Peter passages, the Paul passages, and here in John's Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Now I saw a new heaven, God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So again, we see here the picture of a new heavens and a new earth and the passing away of the first heaven and the first earth. The Greek word for passing away there is the word archomai, which is better translated as go away or to depart. So again, this usage does not at all give the impression of total annihilation, but rather it gives the impression of the restoration of the heavens and earth. Beyond that, in verse 4, it says that there shall be no more pain. Why? For the former things have passed away. And that same word is used there for passed away. And in this case, the former things have passed away. But again, no sign of the annihilation of the earth. And then in verse 5, we see Christ say, Behold, I am making all things new some translations behold I make all things new the way this is phrased leads me to a strong belief that he is making all things all things being the created things new not that he is creating new things but that all things existing are being made new and I think that's very clear in the text behold I make all things new there's there's a condition there that the all things is referring to the things that exist, that are being remade new. And finally, to close out this point and build off of what I just said, we're going to turn all the way to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, and I want to read verses 17 through 19. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, And have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust You shall return. Now, this is a devastating passage. But in this devastating passage, we see that the ground is cursed by God, which goes right back to the image in Romans 8, where we read, For the creation was subjected to futility. Now, the curse of sin is death. God cursed the ground. Adam was created from the dust of the earth. So taking all these things together, the curse of sin is death, the ground is cursed, Adam was created from the ground. In 1 Corinthians 15, 26, we read this. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, if the curse of sin is death, and if death will be defeated when Christ returns in a final sense, Why would the world need to be annihilated? It seems to me that the world will be restored through its release of the curse of death. Now listen, if the Lord, if God, the Almighty, was planning to destroy the earth and start a brand new one, why didn't he just destroy all of us too? Why didn't he just destroy all of us too? He could have. He could have and would have been fully justified in doing so. But instead, our Heavenly Father decided to redeem us. That doesn't nullify the fact that in this mortal body, death faces all of us. But on the other side of that death is redemption. Not of a new man, but of us. The essence of us is eternal. We are not annihilated. We are redeemed. And so taking this picture, it makes perfect biblical sense that God is going to do the same for the heavens and the earth as well. When you remove the power of sin and death, what are you left with? You are left with a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So to end this point, when we think about the glory that is to be revealed, we need to stop thinking about an abstract idea of a kingdom in the clouds We need to stop thinking even about a new earth that's completely, completely different than this one. A totally new creation. And we need to recognize that all the joy and happiness we have here enjoying God's creation will one day be redeemed. And we will spend eternity on a physical earth in physical bodies in perfect union with God. And that, my friends, is a much more tangible reality to picture And it fills me with immense hope. In one of the videos I made on my YouTube channel, I did a short clip that I talked about. Basically, we are in the new heavens and the new earth now. And in that clip, what I talked about was my family has a cabin in Colorado. And one of my favorite things to do is to sit out on the porch and look out over the mountains. It's a remarkable, remarkable thing. And I feel such peace in that moment. And in that moment, it's almost as though evil does not exist. It's almost as though all that I can see is the glory of God in front of me. And in those moments, I can sit and think to myself, I could live like this for eternity. And my friends, I think that that is a God-given feeling that is deeply ingrained in us, that the earth feels like home. We love it. We hate the evil, but we love it. And I don't think that we should just push that aside, but we should acknowledge, why do we love it? It's because we were created for earth. It's because we were created to enjoy the glory of God, to behold the glory of God, to ultimately look at a mountain and not say, hey, this is the result of chance over billions of years, but look at a mountain and go, this was created by God, and fall to our knees in worship and in adoration of him. And that, my friends, is what I believe we have to look forward to in eternity. And so now as we transition into point number two, if you have a pen again, write this down. Point number two, and this is the final point, is I want to talk about the significance to the temple. The significance of the temple throughout Scripture. When we read scripture, we can often lose sight of the symbolic and theological message throughout the whole of scripture. It's very easy to read it, but not exactly see how all the pieces fit. And so what I want to bring out in this closing point, in the closing portion of this message, is just how significant the temple is in scripture and how it relates directly to eternity. And honestly, this point alone could be a three- or four-part sermon in and of itself. But I'm going to do my best to summarize while still showing how, impo- how important and powerful this truth is. So, keeping with the scriptures we've been reading, all tying it back into Romans chapter 8, let's read what we just read in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. I want to point out some incredible things and then show you how this picture relates to scripture as a whole. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Through this passage, we see three important things. The new heavens and the new earth. The holy city, New Jerusalem, and that the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell, which also means tabernacle, to tabernacle, to pitch a tent with them. So based on the language used here, we can safely assume for a few things. One, the new heavens and the new earth are the new Jerusalem. Those are the things John sees. The next part is something he hears And throughout the book of Revelation in general, we see John hearing something and then we see John seeing something. And this has major significance. The part he hears is that the tabernacle of God is now with men, the dwelling place of God. The part he sees is the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and earth. And the dwelling place of God is language that comes from the Old Testament where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And later, in verse 22, we see that this city, in this city, the New Jerusalem, there is no temple because God is the temple. And then a very important thing which helps us to tie together what is being pictured here is that we see that evildoers are outside its gates. So we have the city, and evildoers are outside its gates. But in those, the same chapter those evildoers are described as being in the lake of fire. So, same chapter, evildoers outside the gates, evildoers in the lake of fire. Now, I think it's very safe to assume the lake of fire is not part of the present of, of the earth. It's not a pre, It's not a part of the earth. It's not like the city of Jerusalem is on the earth and the lake of fire is somewhere on the earth. So, taking all these things together we can safely assume that if the wicked are outside the gates and the lake of fire, that city, the the city is a... If the wicked are outside the gates, sorry, and in the lake of fire, we can also safely assume that the city is a picture of the new earth. If the city is a picture of the new earth, then it's also described as the dwelling place of God. We can also assume that the new earth is a temple. Now, are you all still with me? Because I'm moving... Kind of fast, but this is important moving forward. And this is trying to cram so much into such a small amount of time. Okay. So the new heavens and the new earth are the city and the city is a temple. And so taking this picture, I want us to all the way go back to Eden in the very beginning. And we see that the garden of Eden was the very first temple and Adam was the very first priest. Now bear with me. The temple has always been the place where God's presence dwelt. This is clearly pictured in Eden. In fact, in Genesis 3.8, you're welcome to go there if you'd like, it describes God walking in the cool of the day. That same exact language is used to describe him walking in the tabernacle. Furthermore, Adam is the first priest. His duty was priestly. He was told to cultivate, the Hebrew word translates better as serve, and to keep, the Hebrew word translates better as guard, the garden. He was told to cultivate and keep or to serve and to guard the garden. This same language is used to describe the roles of the priests in physical temples. Adam's role was to keep evil out of the garden. Evil cannot enter the Holy of Holies. Adam's role was to keep evil out of the Holy of Holies. Now, Adam failed his job. He failed to protect his bride, Eve, a picture, again, of Christ and the church. He failed his job, and so thus God removed sinful man from his presence, and he set cherubim out to guard the tree of life. Now, this is very interesting. Similarly, in the physical temples... We would see cherubim statues on either side of the altar within the Holy of Holies. Now, in more detail, the physical temples also represented the cosmos, the way that they were laid out. A physical temple was divided into three sections, distinct sections. The Holy of Holies, the Holy Place, and then the Courtyard. The Holy of Holies represented the invisible heavens where God dwelt. The holy place represented the visible heavens where that man could see visibly, but was still distant from him. And the courtyard represented the earth and the sea in which mankind was able to access. And I could go into much more detail about these things, showing how even the decorations used within the the temple, the holy of holies, the holy place and the courtyard match depictions of the cosmos in this way. But I just want to briefly go over this just to try to show you some of these parallels so you can see the bigger picture of the biblical narrative. Now, with all that being said, in Genesis 1.28, we see a very specific command from God to Adam. And remember, Adam is the first priest, the one who is to guard and to keep the Holy of Holies. Genesis 1.28 Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice, he says, fill the earth and subdue it. Remember, mankind is made in the image of God, and the garden represents the holy of holies. What God is commanding Adam goes beyond a simple, have babies and live well on the earth. The idea is to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with the glory of God. Fill the earth with God's image bearers. Fill the earth and extend the boundaries of the holy of holies throughout the expanse of the earth. Now this command was broken through sin and thus God's dwelling place was no longer on the earth with man for a holy God cannot dwell among sinful man. So his contact with man was limited through the physical temple set to look like the cosmos. And what we see in the physical temples is ultimately what they point to. And this is where I'm driving this whole point towards. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who did what Adam couldn't. He defeated the serpent and faithfully defended his bride. Where Adam failed in allowing the serpent to enter and to deceive his bride, Christ conquered by crushing the head of the serpent and protecting and covering his bride. And so through this, we see the powerful reality that the temple shadowed. In John 1.14, John writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Once again, we see the word dwelt, this time in the form of Christ Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the temple, the very presence and dwelling of God. And as the gospel progresses throughout the New Testament, we see the concept of the temple progressing too. Jesus refers to his body as the temple, directly saying, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And finally, we see this culmination of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, we read, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? We begin to see that through Christ, those in him become the temple of god because the spirit dwells there's that word again dwells within us or in first peter 2 verses 4 through 5 coming to him as living stones rejected indeed by men but chosen by god and precious you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And again, the holy priesthood that Peter bestows upon the church was the holy priesthood bestowed upon Israel in the context of the temple. We see a transition here. We see that through Christ, the fulfillment of the shadows has reached its fruition and that through him, we now are are the temple of God, a holy priesthood, living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And this becomes beautiful when we go back to the Great Commission and we see this narrative leading to the Great Commission. We get to see how it ties all together Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is a very similar picture to what was told of Adam. Fill the earth and subdue it. And in Christ, we see its fulfillment as we, his messengers, go throughout the earth, filling it with the glory of God. And we see Christ's enemies being subdued under his feet, for he must reign until all his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. Now, how does this all relate directly with eternity? Because I want to I pull it all back here. Well, it relates because it deals with the reality of a third and final temple. Now, many people will understand this to be a physical temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. But I challenge you, when you look at scriptures, you clearly see that this just cannot be. The book of Hebrews especially wipes the idea of a physical temple with reinstituted sacrifices just completely out. The whole book of Hebrews is about how the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, all of it was a shadow of a greater reality to come in Christ Jesus. As Paul says, The substance belongs to Christ. My friends, if we hold on to this idea of another physical temple being built and part of God's plan, the message that that sends to the world is that there is something greater than Jesus. Jesus is the substance. If we return to a shadow, we are implying that the fulfillment hasn't arrived. I heard it put this way once. If I had a picture of my wife, and I loved looking at that picture of my wife more than actually looking and loving my wife, what, what would that do to my wife? She'd probably say something like, "Hun, i I'm right here. I'm the substance. That photo is only a picture of the reality you now have in me. So, brothers and sisters, I know that the idea of a physical third temple to come in Jerusalem is deeply entrenched in Western Christianity. But I would urge you, you cannot read Scripture and come to that conclusion that that would be a part of God's plan to return to a shadow. That being said, when we are able to get past the idea of a third temple in Jerusalem, we begin to see that the restored temple, a real third temple being described in scripture, is ultimately not a physical temple, but rather the new heavens and the new earth, the dwelling place of God with man. Note again, Revelation 21, But I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. This is said after giving a description of the city. Which, guess what? It includes measurements. The measurements, the city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and height are equal. Now these measurements that were just given are the same exact measurements found, guess where? In the Holy of Holies. So, again, what we see here is that this third and final temple is not a physical structure, but rather the presence of God throughout the whole earth. Its measurements, the same as the Holy of Holies, a symbolic picture of God's glory throughout the whole earth. Every inch of the earth will be bathed in his presence. Every part of it will be his dwelling place. The new earth is the fulfillment of what God commanded Adam. The new earth is the Holy of Holies, made manifest as it was symbolized in a physical temple. But taking this even one step further, this third temple as prophesied in the Old Testament finds its builder being Christ Jesus himself. Once again showing that the fulfillment is not only found in him, but also that this is not a physical building. In Zechariah 6:12 through 13 we read this. Then speak to him saying thus says the Lord of hosts behold the man whose name is the branch from his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes. He shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, he shall sit and rule on his throne, he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. We see the image of Christ as both ruler and priest. Two separate distinct roles roles in the Judaic customs, but fulfilled perfectly in the Godhead. Notice also the language. From his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. This reminds me of Daniel's prophecy of the stone cut from no human hand that grew to become a mountain that filled the whole earth. Or Jesus himself talking of the mustard seed that starts out small and grows to be the most large plant out of them all. My friends, we are in the process through Christ's indwelling spirit of building this temple that will be culminated at his return. Christ is the cornerstone, and we are the living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house that will one day cover the expanse of the cosmos. When we take this picture and we read the Bible with Christ as the guiding light and the lens, we begin to see a picture of what was inaugurated at Calvary. Satan was defeated. Death was beaten, and life and redemption was extended to sinful Jews and Gentiles alike. With all of this being said, I want to go back to Romans 8, and I want to read what we read to start. Romans 8, 18-23, and I want to just look at this text with the picture of what we just went over. Romans 8, 18-23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of the corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Friends, what we see through the beauty of the Word of God is that at the death and resurrection of Christ, the new creation was inaugurated. It's an already, not yet way of thinking. We are new creations in Christ, as scripture teaches, but in a spiritual sense. And what we long for and what we wait for is the physical culmination of that. We are in the new heavens and the new earth spiritually, but we await their final physical manifestation. We are living in a spiritual reality that awaits its physical culmination. The glory to be revealed to us is ultimately a cleansed earth, not an annihilated earth, replaced by a brand new creation, but rather a purified earth in which sin, death, and evil are no more. A redeemed cosmos in which the very presence of God dwells among man. A world in which the Holy of Holies extends everywhere, covering the expanse of all creation. A place where we will live as humans in physical redeemed bodies on this physical earth, totally redeemed, totally made right, living in the final and complete temple of God, where Christ is the temple and we are his worshipers, part of the holy temple. We all look towards the day where every creature knows and expresses the praise of our mighty, sovereign God. So as we close, I want to say that we will never, ever fully know what eternity will be like until we are there. I didn't even go into the idea of the intermediate state where believers are right now, or anything like that. But what I hope I accomplished through the Spirit today is that through Scripture, I pray that I was able to give you a broader picture of what we have to look forward to. My prayer is that you've gone from having a picture of the Grand Canyon to maybe something a little bit more like standing on the precipice, looking out over its vast glory. My goal was and is to help us all echo Paul when we say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. I pray that we can read that and all echo him with a hearty amen as we continue to build the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel, and as we groan with all of creation, ultimately fixing our eyes on our hope and the glory that is to come and is to be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. With that being said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you now, ultimately just so grateful so grateful that we can look at the trials of this world, whether that be small or whether that be giving our lives as martyrs for Christ, Lord, that we can look at that and we we don't even have to begin to compare that to the glory that is to come. We don't even have to begin to think to ourselves, eh, what if what if this suffering is not worth it? Lord, I pray that through the picture of just an immense world full of your glory, where we will dwell as physical people, enjoying your creation, enjoying your presence, enjoying right relationship, that it has given us maybe a deeper sense of what awaits us. And Lord, ultimately, I don't want this to be focused on us and our satisfaction in eternity, Lord, but rather your glory for all things were created by you and for you. And Lord, we are caught up as your children, caught up in your glory as partakers of that. And God, I just pray that as we meditate on the glory that is to come, it would equip us to endure the suffering that we experience and will experience in this present time, Lord. And also, Lord, I want to thank you for your many blessings. I'm thankful for a country, Lord, where we can do this where we can preach the gospel, where we can spread the good news and not be fearful of our lives. What a, what a privilege that is. And I pray, Lord, we would not take that for granted. And so, God, as we look to Paul and what he said, I pray that that would be true for us, that as we continue to meditate on what we possess in Christ Jesus right now, that would equip us to endure the sufferings we may have to face as we look towards the glory that will manifest itself in the physical sense that is to come. We pray all these things in the precious, mighty name of Jesus Christ, through the amazing power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.